Back to our reading. Hate this microphone. Hate this ladies and gentlemen, those are poets. Totally unbelievable. Poetry night rings through. Follow the rules. While you're thinking about that, put your hands together and welcome Andy up to the microphone. Thank you, everyone. Blue Muscles. Don't be sad. Your destiny isn't to be as happy as clams. You're cultured. You'll have a hot bath and butter drawn for you. You'll be served with parsley and thyme. In time, this too shall pass. Blue mussels, don't be sad. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to the board members of Poetry Night for inviting me to feature here. I I first read at Poetry Night in 2010, uh, quite a while ago, and all of the encouragement I've received over the years here, I really appreciate. And it's so good to see so many friendly faces in the audience. Termite Palace. In Honolulu, the Islanders played in an old wooden stadium nicknamed the Termite Palace because termites holding termite hands held it together. Mom didn't like baseball, but we went one day. I leaped seats toward a ball hit our way. It ricocheted off a bleacher seat well over my head. Other boys laughed at me at how I thoroughly misjudged the ball. Their derision stung. We went to the next day's game too. Revelations, mom's love, despite the hazards of life with me, how she always rooted for me, how termites held the stadium together for a game and then a second game. Christmas Day in New Orleans, listening for Grandpa. I spent Christmas Day in New Orleans, went looking for the gift and mystery of you, walked and searched the city, tried to see what's left of what you saw some 50 years earlier. I dodged the knots of people decidedly not festive, walked and listened along largely deserted streets. Grandpa, tell me, 
Did you enjoy Benet's and strong chicory-flavored coffee at the open-air market? Did you pause, listen to buskers in Jackson Square, drop coin offerings in their open cases? Did you marvel at the oftentimes boisterous flood of humanity, sympathize with the occasional scatter of lonely, desperate people? Did you frequent the gentlemen's clubs, wink at the pretty hostesses, whisper in their ears, linger? I listened for your answers. You were absent. I found your old hangout, Pat O'Brien's, open. I thought we'd have a drink together, me and you, me and memories of you held within these walls. Grandpa, what did you drink? What did you talk about? Here you were neither present nor absent. I listened, couldn't hear even a ghost of a whisper. I drank a hurricane, kept the complimentary glass. I drove, looked for the freeway on-ramp, kept to the posted speed limits. I drove carefully with the Pat O'Brien's hurricane glass cradled in its box next to me, swaddled in a spare shirt like something once alive caught in a cobweb. New Orleans shrank in my rear-view mirror. Grandpa, I'm sorry we never met. I've missed you. I noted your absence, the dearth of answers, a profound loneliness piercing my life. I drove carefully, wanted to get back without breaking. What we love consumes us. In the photograph, molten rock is momentarily stilled. The coconut trees Dad planted are still alive. Kamoamoa hasn't been destroyed, and his death is months away. Lava advances in orange fiery lobes of pohoihoi, and black crust forms back of the flow's leading edge. Coconut trees still stand, but are clearly doomed. In the background, people bear witness. I am certain the dad wasn't among them. Already very ill himself, he was caring for his companion after her stroke. The photograph was taken on the island of Hawaii. I purchased and framed it in koa to freeze a moment and provide away into memory. Kamoamoa was one of his favorite places on the island he made his final home. Kamoamoa was a place to talk of his legacies, for him to talk of the Hawaiians' achievements, for him to talk about planting trees and watching them grow over decades. At Kamoamoa we camped, once played catch, Mauka of those trees. An autopsy revealed that one lung was a mass of scar tissue. Dad died of pulmonary fibrosis. 
it made sense finally. Dad saying his lungs hurt and coughing flecks of blood into a handkerchief. Now I look at the photograph and imagine fiery pain and black crust forming and reforming. Volcanic fumes in the very air of his beloved land consumed his lungs and consumed him. Still, I'm envious he found his final home so early. How about something lighter? What, what a concept, huh? Angel and I consider a new roommate. This morning I'm tending a love poem inspired by a woman I've had few words with. She's lovely, not distant or icy. We're practically neighbors but actually haven't met. I don't know her name. Perhaps she's Sarah or Susan. (laughs) Angel sprawls over pages from a legal pad and my scrawl. He wants me to ignore Sarah, or whatever her name is. Angel wants me to tend to him, bats at my pen, and knocks it off the kitchen table to the floor at my feet. He purrs as I rub his ears and pet his fur. Angel is an American domestic short-haired cat, mostly white, white as the remaining polar ice. Yellow highlights in his fur are paler than a legal pad, resemble the faint yellow cast of a polar bear's fur. Angel was his shelter name. I've added other names, Angel P. Cat, P. for Polar, making his full name Angel Polar Cat. Occasionally I ask Angel if he'll live with me permanently after the polar ice melts. Imagine a future in which the Arctic ice has melted, where humans' lives built on 10,000 years of ice and practice are changed irretrievably, where toxic chemicals bioaccumulate and alter polar bears' biology, where polar bears swim until exhaustion sets in and they drown, where remnant polar bear populations struggle to exist, maybe merge with remnant grizzly bear populations. At some point, I'll ask Sarah if she will provide sanctuary and shelter, allow Angel and me to move in and live with her before the permafrost melts. Imagine our future in Sarah's place. Domesticated, Angel and I will sprawl in her pad luxuriate in catnaps, catnip and coffee, cat treats and chocolate. I'll pay half the rent, take care of the cat box and the bathroom, wash our dishes, scratch Sarah's back, work hard at having her purr. But domestic bliss will make me feel guilty. I'll think up questions such as, what will the polar bears eat? Angel, Sarah, and I together would only be hors d'oeuvres for an adult polar bear. Pensively, I'll watch the slow-motion oil train wreck or coal train wreck of global warming 
talk about ice and flame, CO2 and methane. Exasperated, Sarah will pause in batting my ears, will pause from throwing me out and from throwing my possessions out onto the apartment lawn. She'll ask, what are you doing about global warming? I'll answer that I'm calling on our better angels. I'll add, I'm writing about something better for all of us. Less fear and less terror. Action instead of reaction and complacency. A humane future. A future full of beauty and full of love. A future full of polar bears. And only one polar cat. I guess it wasn't that light, was it? Right? Where's the harm there? As my friend Jim Berlino would say, where's the harm there in having a cat in a poem? So so Yoshi read first, and I see that he's taken off, but I just wanted to mention that uh, he, he said that today's International Peace Day uh, I did invite the peace vigilists to show up, and, and I, I see that they're probably out there at the corner right now. So I thought I would read something in their honor. This is for Jim Milstead, Ellen Murphy, and all of the peace vigilists who stand in the corner every Friday. It doesn't matter what weather, they're out there. This poem begins with an epigraph by Sarah Browning. The war works hard, so poets and activists have to work even harder. Peace Vigil, downtown Bellingham. Be quiet and subdued. Don't volunteer any of what you might know about the Peace Vigil. For instance, how it's the longest-running Peace Vigil in the country since 1966. Hold off on making a sign for now. There are plenty of handmade signs to choose from. There's also plenty of time to affix your message to sign, to broadcast your specific peace or justice-related concern. Don't overdo it, and don't show the fanaticism of the newly converted. Don't stand on one of the corners of the intersection near the massive pile of the old federal building unless you're committed unless you're a lunatic for peace, unless you're willing to be seen surrounded by the gently mad and the sincerely hopeful, unless you're in it for the long haul. Ask the gray-haired and white-haired women and men standing the vigil. Listen, you'll learn more. A peace vigil isn't for the faint of heart. A peace vigil is for the big-hearted. Thank you. So I think I'll go with that slightly dark theme since it's working so well. Last road trip. Mom called me at the hotel a few miles away from her home, said she wouldn't allow my visit. My girlfriend commented, That's family. Now we'll get to do more sightseeing. She reluctantly agreed to Santa Fe, but declined Taos, 
even after I told her how I loved Taos and Taos Pueblo, surrounded by snow-limbed mountains. My girlfriend wanted to see ruins. While she chose which ones we would see, I struggled with thoughts of my relationship with mom as wreckage. Fighting disbelief and anger at her refusal, I drove the rental sedan toward Bandelier. We stopped at the edge of a massive ancient caldera. From the turnout, we heard an elk bugling. I felt my demons, lack of self-esteem, uncertainty, returning. We learned that the dense gray smoke scouring the western sky was from fires surrounding our destination. We found the site safe. Relieved, we marveled at its slot canyon and at the residential cells of a once-living, once-thriving human city. We admired petroglyphs. We noted cupules in living rock used to anchor poles of buildings to canyon walls. We exclaimed over the scarcity of water, speculated about the role of fire in this land. We drove back to Albuquerque, then towards Salinas Pueblo Missions. Parched and dissected by barbed wire fences, the land tilted to the southeast. Emptiness reigned over isolated ranch houses and scattered knots of livestock. We were largely silent. During one stretch of roadway, we argued about things irrelevant to our relationship. Plastic bags and driver's refusal to give up SUVs. We made it to Salinas, found a desolate land shorn of love and the sacred. The mission church and kivas were open to the sky, desiccated wounds. The ruins were vast, lifeless, forlorn. Mostly true. Stripped bare, the kivas and mission church still exuded the sacred. Joy in entering and re-entering the blessed world. I felt forlorn, shorn of love and sacredness. I was wounded, not lifeless. I wanted to ask, Hun, is this the end? Even in a sacred enchanted land, it might be too late to build an altar to the goddess of second chances. This is what the end looks like after all. Thank you, everyone. So in 2013, I started writing, I started imagining what it might be like to have kids because I don't have any children and I'm, I'm well into middle age now. So in 2013, I just started writing about a son I'll never have and a daughter I'll never have. And I just kind of went with it. I came up with maybe 25 to 30 poems about this theme. And this is one of my favorites. This was picked up by Connecticut River Review, which made me happy. You know, I'm sorry, that Mud Season Review picked this up. That's, I was still happy. 
different place, still happy. I take the son I'll never have to his first baseball game. I take the son I'll never have to his first baseball game. The daughter I'll never have tags along. She's the one who remembers our gloves. I'm excited and expansive. I want to talk with the son I'll never have about my dad and me playing catch in front of the garage and carport. How the baseball took wicked hops off the uneven rocky driveway between us. I want to talk about how my dad, his companion Charlotte, and I attended an Islanders exhibition game in Hilo one year back in the early 1970s. The son I'll never have pretends he's listening, nods, tries looking interested. Truth is, he's not all that into baseball. He's a soccer and basketball fan. He's clearly more interested in the e-device nestled in his hands like a caught high fly ball. I sigh, finally decide to leave him to his own devices. The daughter I'll never have is interested, asks questions, wants to know more. She's totally into the game. With a little help from me, she keeps score using the scoring form in the program. At one point, late in the game, she catches a foul ball over the head of her brother. He's grateful that his sister kept the ball from hitting him or his e-device. At the end of the game, we walk out of the stadium and I find myself telling the daughter I'll never have that my mom despite not liking baseball at all, took me to two Islanders games in a row in Honolulu one year. After all these years have passed, it's a revelation. Mom's love for me, her taking me to two baseball games. The daughter I'll never have hands me her souvenir baseball and says, This is for you, Daddy. She asks, When can we go to another game? I don't see it, but the son I'll never have rolls his eyes, says, Way to go, sis. I reply, Soon. The daughter I'll never have allows me to put an arm around her shoulders for a moment. Today is opening day. Today hums with promise. Thank you. That's a little bit lighter. So uh, I wrote this poem for a lovely lady named Evelyn, Evelyn Thompson. Uh, she was born in 1916. Uh, she died earlier this year. She was 99 years old. And this is for Evelyn Thompson, my dear friend, uh, my ex-girlfriend's mom. Chuckanut Drive Road Trip. I drive my elderly friend Evelyn through Fairhaven and down the old coast highway known now as Chuckanut Drive. From high cliffs, views open up of ocean and islands to the west, mudflats to the south. Tides out. Although she is legally blind, she remembers these views. During World War II, Evelyn was a Rosie the Riveter-like welder 
in a San Francisco Bay naval shipyard. Evelyn met Clifford in the lobby of one of the residential hotels in San Francisco. He was a harbor pilot, guided ships in and out of the harbor. I think he admired her fine lines, the steel underlying her exquisite features. After the war, Clifford drove Evelyn, his new wife, up this road to Whatcom County. Evelyn asks me, Did you know prisoners built this roadway? Clifford told me. She's told me this before, but it's okay. I answer, Really? It must have been tough going. We park at one of the overlooks. I get out and help with her walker. For a time, she stands with face uplifted for the sea breeze. She must sense the vast volume of space beyond us. Tiring, she sits on her walker seat. To lift her mood and mine, I shout, We are alive! She laughs at me, and for the rest of our day, smiles. With her example before me, I know I will persevere. Someday I'll insist on being driven here. I'll wrestle my walker or I'll be wheeled out to the cliffside to luxuriate in the expanse of distance. When I can no longer see, I will be here where memory dwells. I will ask my driver, did you know prisoners built this roadway. Evelyn told me. Thank you so much, everyone. You guys are great. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Poetry Night. Again, again. Again, again, I tell you, tell you, listen. Yeah.